We are looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And last week we read about the beginning of the book of Genesis um, is where we are introduced to this man, Abraham. And Abraham was a man who, uh, as we're introduced to him, he's part of a family that worships uh, the moon god. And uh, he is part of the last line of people who were supposed to know who God was. But we see that he loses this. They actually forget who God is and they, they give up uh, their faith and turn to these false gods. Um, but at the dead end of his life, God calls him and God makes this promise to him and he sends him out and he goes out into the promised land that God gives to him, this land in, in Canaan. And we see, we didn't talk about this last week, but what we read was that he set up these, al- these altars to, to God in the midst of this place where other people were worshiping lots and lots of different gods. And this is a big deal. Monotheism was a, was a big deal. It's not a big deal to us today. But the thought that someone would worship one God and only one God in the midst of all the things to worship was a really big deal. And so um, what we're going to look at this week, we're going to start up where we left off. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, reading verses 10 through 20. I think it's on the, there. It's also on the back of your bulletin if you guys want to follow along there. Um, this is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. So they're in, the, they're in the promised land, and this is where we pick up. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So a few years ago, Mary Clark and I watched all the way through Parks and Rec. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with the show Parks and Rec, it's similar to The Office in that it's this like quasi-documentary following around a seemingly mundane group of people. In the case of this show, it's the Parks and Recreation Department in Pawnee, Indiana, this little town in Indiana. And the cast, the characters, it's this zany group of people that lurk in this office together. And one of the characters is this guy named Ron Swanson. If you're unfamiliar with Juan Swanson, he's played by Nick Offerman, who's a stand-up comedian, and um, the character, he's a libertarian. He hates the government, and so he does everything he can in his power to like, make his job as unfunctional as possible. He lives off the grid, he eats lots of meat. He's kind of this stereotypical strongman character, right? Everything that you would put in the masculine category, he tries to embody. He, like, he's, he's sort of a stoic, right? He doesn't really have extreme expressions of joy or elation, but also no extreme expressions of sadness, just kind of steady in the middle. 
And we're, we're told or we're shown that this man has zero weaknesses, except for one weakness, Tammy two. So he has, because um, Tammy one, so he has two ex-wives, Tammy one and Tammy two, and he has this weakness for Tammy two when, when, he's, when she's not there, he's strong, he's steady, he's everything masculine, um, he's unshakable, but when she shows up, he completely falls apart. He's unable to resist her. He appears to be strong on his own, but when she shows up, it's like he gets snagged by this fish hook and he can't get off the line. But then later in the show, Ron meets this new woman, Diane. He falls for her. Eventually, they get married. And then when Tammy, too, shows up and tries to seduce him, it no longer works because he's married to this new woman who he loves. All right, ridiculous illustration. Why do I tell the story? Well, in Parks and Rec, the only thing that has the power to prevent Ron Swanson from falling for Tammy, too, is his new wife. And there's this principle behind that, that the only thing that has the power to stop us or, to, or the power to make us stop loving things that are bad for us. The only thing is the power to stop us from loving things that are bad for us are good things. Is if we fall in love with something better. If there's something bad, if there's something destructive in your life that you can't get rid of, if you've been snared by that fish hook, you can't just cut the line because you'll always end up going back to it. That's just not how our hearts work. It has to be replaced by something better, something more beautiful, more powerful, more lovely. So who was Genesis written to? Who was the original audience? Genesis was a book that was written to Israel as they were being freed from their slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved as a people for about 400 years in Egypt. And this book was given to them so they might know who they are and who God is. And most of the sources tell us that the book was either written by Moses or it was, um, Moses was the primary source for the material in Genesis. And if you saw the movie Prince of Egypt when you were a kid or you've read the book of Exodus, you know the story. It's the story of a group of people who the book begins, they are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God and he responds by miraculously sending plagues on the Egyptians and then setting his people free. But as soon as they get to the desert, they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And as soon as they are moving towards the promised land, this land that God promises Abraham, they start to grumble and they say, I want to go back to Egypt. Can't we go back there? Wasn't it great back there? Right? This fish hook is tugging at their hearts. Egypt is their Tammy too. Right? She had stuff going on. There was food in Egypt. Let's go back there. And Moses is telling him this story saying, don't look at her. Look at your wife. It wasn't great back there. It's better ahead. Look at your God. Look at who he is and what he is like. And so Moses tells them this story that actually parallels their experience in Egypt in the life of their father, Abraham. It's a true story, but it's really remarkable how God puts this together. And he's going to show how God is present and how he protects and how he provides for his people. I um, just want to say thank my friend Ben Robertson, who's an REF campus minister, um, got a lot of help from him for this sermon. So first, God is present. The first thing we see in the text is that, that God is present. He's present with Abraham as Abraham um, is in the land. And interestingly, we only see God's name once here in this passage. Uh, he's present, but he's sort of invisible. Like he only shows up in verse 17 and then he sort of disappears again. And last week we read that God told Abraham, I will be with you, I will bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing to all the nations. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times he makes this promise in just these three little verses. 
God promises Abraham that he will be with him and he will not leave him. But we pick up here in verse 10 and we read that the land has been struck with a famine. They run out of food, which flash forward to Exodus. That's the reason that Israel ended up going into Egypt. The end of the book of Genesis, there's a famine and they go into Egypt because that's where there's food. So a famine comes to the land. Abraham goes down to Egypt because he's got to figure out how to feed his people and his animals and himself. And he's forgotten that God is with him. So I read an article today on the, um, in the International Journal of Alzheimer's Disease entitled, you know I'm searching for an illustration when I'm on the International Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, the article is entitled, Memory Awareness Influences Everyday Decisions Making Capacity About Medicine <laughs> Management in Alzheimer's Disease. It's fascinating. I just read the abstract. I can barely understand that. But what I think they discovered and what I read... <laughs> is that when people don't realize that they're losing their memories, it severely affects their ability to take care of themselves. Made me think of the old lady in the notebook. I just got really sad. Um, The old lady in the notebook. And this is what we've got with Abraham. Like In the midst of a famine, he doesn't realize that he's forgotten who God is. He isn't aware that he's forgotten the promises that were made to him. He's thinking, God has left me, I'm alone in all this, and he's trying to figure out a way to solve this himself. He's forgetting that God is with him. And his act of self-protection, right, his desire to protect himself and his family and all the people with him from, from the famine, this act of self-protection actually puts him in harm's way. So a question for you, let me ask you this. How would your life change if you knew that God was present with you as you're going through the chaos of life and you can't see what's ahead? Seniors, y'all are in the spring semester of your senior year. God has not left you. You don't know what's next. Some of you do. There's awful people who already have jobs. But a lot of you don't. And God is with you. Right? He's here with Abraham, but he's not just with Abraham. He's there to protect Abraham. He's not just present with Abraham, but he's there to protect him. Look at verse 11 with me. It says that when he's going down to Egypt, he says to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will not let you live. So here's Abraham. He's forgetting that God is with him. In the statement he makes, he's not being paranoid. This is not a crazy statement because in that culture, for Abraham to be worried about, his, about this is not crazy. He's not being unreasonably anxious. Pharaoh absolutely had the power to be like, hey, your wife, she's beautiful. She's going to be my wife. You're dead. That absolutely could have happened to him. But instead, God ends up in the story, at the end of the story, protecting Abraham from that. He protects Abraham from his enemies. So first we see that he protects Abraham from the enemies that are outside of him, namely Pharaoh. Um, I read a story about a doctor named Dr. Brand, who's a physician. He died about 20 years ago, and he was famous for his work, for his study, um, working with leprosy, working with Hansen's disease. And in his research, he studied, one of the leper colonies he studied was this leper colony in a Hawaiian island of Molokai. Um, so some of you probably know this, science majors, when, when we talk about leprosy, what actually is going on here is that people have the inability to feel pain. And so you might think, man, that sounds awesome to not, ha- to not have to feel pain. But 
What, what was happening in this leper colony was that these people were living in these third world conditions on the island, and then when people were asleep, insects and rodents and other things would come in and attack, kind of gross. They would actually start eating the people, but they wouldn't feel the pain, and they wouldn't know it was happening, and then they'd wake up. Um, and the next day, they'd say, look at what leprosy did to my hand. And they would come to the doctor, and they had no defense. And God here protects Abraham. He protects him from the famine, and he also protects him from Pharaoh himself. In this story, it's, it's pretty incredible what he does. So a question for you, who are your enemies? Um, I hope that, you, unlike Abraham, you don't have anyone who's trying to kill you. If you do, um, let's get coffee. We can go to the police together. Um, but who are your enemies? Um, what is something that's trying to kill your reputation? Who's, uh, who's trying to kill your plans for the future? What is something that's trying to kill your status? What, what are you afraid of? What do you fear and treat as an enemy? Some of you are afraid of your professors. Um, some of you are afraid of other students. You know, sometimes people who are raised in the church, who are raised Christians, are afraid of people who aren't Christians. And then they get to college and they get scared. They think, oh no, um, how do I talk to this person? What if they judge me? They end up being fearful of people who aren't Christians. I mean, all of us have things that scare us. And God is showing Abraham. He's saying, I'm going to protect you from your enemies. I made these huge promises to you. I'm going to fulfill those promises. You do not have to freak out. You don't have to be scared. But more than that, more than protecting him from the enemy on the outside, God is protecting Abraham from the enemy within, the enemy on the inside. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, when the prince of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And then skipping down to 18, after they found out what's going on, Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is it you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister so that I took her for my wife? Took her for my wife. Ancient texts are usually subtle in telling you what's happening. And you don't have to read very far between the lines to realize what's happened here. And so Pharaoh says to him, take your wife. Here she is, take her and go. Abraham is his own worst enemy. What he does, what he does to his wife is, a, is terrible. This is a horrible thing. And what's interesting, what should surprise us in this story is that Pharaoh is shocked. The language in the Hebrew is very strong here when he says, what? It's like, what did you do? What did you do? What have you done? Pharaoh is shocked at Abraham. Now, remember with me who the original audience is of this story. It's Israel. After being freed from 400 years of slavery under Pharaohs, this is a different Pharaoh, but it's the same kind of figure. And so they're thinking, who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the person who enslaved us for 400 years, who threw our babies into the river, and it's him. It's the tyrant. He's the one who's morally appalled by our father. This is amazing. Here's this horrible thing that Abraham has done. But you zoom out and you see the big picture. God has made this promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. How does he say he's going to do this, right? Through his offspring, through his children. And to have kids, he needs a wife. And Abraham just hands her over, jeopardizing the fate of the whole world. And when God called him, he said, I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. And here in the story, 
He's become a curse to Pharaoh and everyone else. Abraham is his own worst enemy. So going back to Dr. Brand, uh, the doctor, as he's studying these lepers in this leper colony in Hawaii, in his journals, he recorded the injuries that they would get from rodents and things. But he wrote that the worst injuries they got were the ones that were self-inflicted. He records watching a man who was roasting potatoes on a coal fire and then reached into the fire and picked the potatoes up and carried them over to serve other people. And then lo and behold, six hours later, he's at the clinic saying, look what leprosy did to me. His wounds were self-inflicted and he couldn't see it. Do you have a category for thinking that perhaps you are your own worst enemy? Do you have a category for thinking that there is an enemy within? Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is about our hearts. This is about my heart and your heart. And if you don't have a category like that, if you don't have a category that says maybe that I'm the problem, maybe I'm the problem with me, if you don't have that category, that itself could be what's making you your own worst enemy. Being oblivious to the idea that maybe I'm the source of a lot of my strife and problems. Being oblivious to that could be what's making you your own worst enemy. Now, you aren't the source of all your problems. Some of you have people in your life who are awful and are way worse than you, but we are our own worst enemies. I find this interesting that this is here because Christians are not known for being people who think this about themselves. There was a study done by a research institute, Barna, in 2007, and they asked outsiders, people outside of the church, um, who look in on the church, how they would describe Christians in the church. And 85% of people interviewed said that a good word to describe Christians they know is hypocritical. Now, why is that? Why is it that the people outside of this room look in here and say, these are hypocrites, Christians are hypocrites? It might be because we don't go around saying, look at the blisters on my hands that I did to myself. Look at what I did to myself. We often just blame others or we blame the potatoes. And yet, what's amazing in the Bible in this story is that God chose Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. This guy, this fool, this spineless, fearful, childish guy. And yet God said to him, you're mine. And part of it, as we talk about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, part of what we're saying to others and to each other and to ourselves and the people around us, we're saying, yes, God is great. He does all these things. He provides for me. He protects me. But God saves me from me. God saved me from me. Can you say that? Can you, with Abraham, say, say that? Say that God saved me from me. So God is present, God protects, and God provides. Finally, we see that he actually provides for Abraham in this amazing way. In verse 20, when Pharaoh is kicking Abraham out of Egypt, it says, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So what is this all that he had? Well, verse 16, we're told, for Sarah's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham and gave him sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Um. So we watched the new Aladdin movie. It's on Disney Plus, and we watched it the other weekend. And I don't know if y'all have seen Aladdin, but there's this incredible scene when Aladdin says to Will Smith, um, I want to be 
a, I want to be a prince. And so the genie snaps his fingers right. He be, he's turned into this prince, and there's this amazing procession as he parades into Agrabah, right, to impress Jasmine and her father, the sultan. And you see this, that as he processes in, first there are dancers, and there's um, singers and musicians and servants and all of these animals, and at the back is Prince Ali riding on a giant elephant. That's what's going on here. This is this parade of animals that are showing off his wealth and at the back are the camels, which is basically like the elephants, where the people would sit on it and be able to overlook all the wealth that they had. Pharaoh sends them away with all that they had. But do you remember how they started out at the beginning of the story, verse 10, that there's a famine in the land, right? They're about to lose everything. They literally could not eat, and then he leaves Egypt with all this. And this is just a long explanation in an ancient Near Eastern way of saying that Abraham left Egypt really, really rich. And so, again, to the original audience, they would, to the Israelites, they would remember, oh, we went into Egypt long ago because there was a famine in the promised land. And then our ancestors came to Egypt and they were enslaved there for 400 years. And then God sent plagues on the Pharaoh. And here in verse 17, where it says God afflicted Pharaoh with plagues, it literally says that he plagued Pharaoh with plagues. And so Moses is ringing a bell for Israel and saying, do you hear this? Does this sound familiar to you? Remember what's going on. You don't have to go back to the way it was before. And at the end of the story, if you remember from Exodus, it says that they plundered the Egyptians. That when Pharaoh goes to them, he says, go, get out of here. And then the Egyptian people just come out with all their stuff and they give them animals and gifts and silver and gold and say, get out, good riddance, and give them all these things. And here, Pharaoh says, take your wife, take her, and go, echoing what happened in the Exodus. This is incredible what's happening here. Um, I've got a friend who is a huge Alabama football fan, and frankly, I'm glad for the end of that dynasty. Go Tigers. I'm not sure what Tigers, but one of the Tigers. Um, So he grew up an Alabama fan. Uh, He he tells a story when he grew up an Alabama fan. Alabama didn't win a national championship until he was little, and then in 92, they won a championship, and then they, they won a whole bunch recently. But when they won in 92, there was this player for Alabama named David Palmer. And Palmer went later to play in the NFL, and he wore number two. And when he would break a big rung, the announcers would say, the deuce is loose, which is funny. And if you watch football, if you watch football, any football, you're familiar, maybe you're familiar with this guy who plays for the Saints, uh, Taysom Hill. And part of what makes him so exciting as a player is that he plays like every position, right? He takes snaps at quarterback. He's a running back. He'll line up as a receiver. He'll be on the punt, um, punt team. Like he, he, does, he does everything. Um, and that's sort of a new thing in football. But uh, David Palmer was doing that back in the early 90s. Like he was so fast and so athletic. He would line up at quarterback. He was a running back. He'd line up at wide receiver. He was on special teams. Um, But what was amazing about watching him play is that he was at his best when stuff fell apart, when things didn't go the way they're supposed to. And in sports, you know, this is called a busted play. Things aren't happening the way that they're supposed to. And it's when a play got busted that you would really see Palmer shine. You'd see his speed and his athleticism, and he would take off down the field. And the way my friend describes it when he was a kid watching him play was that when the play was busted, when it looked like it was going to be a sack or a tackle for loss, it was at that moment when you got on the edge of your chair because you knew something was going to happen. And it was so cool that he looked good on the plays 
that ran the way they're supposed to, but he looked amazing when everything went wrong and he still made it happen. Which is funny because if the play had not gone wrong, no one would have known just how good he was. Right? And that's what God's doing here. He takes this train wreck of a play that Abraham has set up and says, you know what, Abraham, you're an idiot, but I'm going to save you and your wife. You are not going to die, you're going to live, and you are going to ride out of Egypt on your camels, loaded down with wealth, because that is what I do. So question for you, what is your busted play? What is something in your life that's like, this is, just, this is not how it's supposed to go? It could be a small frustration, it could be small, it could be something that you've created, something you've done to yourself, it could be something that's done to you, um, it could be an illness, maybe even a death in your family. It could be a relationship that isn't going the way it's supposed to. Part of what the story is telling us from long, long ago is that God can take these awful situations and out of them he can bring something amazing, something beautiful. He can take our busted plays and turn them into something beyond our imaginations. Y'all live in a world that is obsessed with measurements and metrics. And so you're hearing over and over again, don't screw it up. You can't fail because everything is being measured. In the book of Ephesians, the letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he says, says this, he says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. That his greatness is immeasurable. That he wants to show you, he wants to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God can take your busted play and turn it into something beyond your imagination because he wants to show off to you and in you and through you the riches of his grace. He can do that. Whatever the mess is in your life, you may look back in 10 years and think, thank God that happened. Or think, that thing really was awful, but I wouldn't change it now because of how God has used it. And ultimately, he did this for Abraham long ago, but in the, in the big picture, he has done this for us in Jesus. Because the biggest busted play in the history of the world happened 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem, where the Son of God was crucified. He was innocent, he was God himself, and he died. He was tortured, and he was put to death. And God uses that thing, the worst possible thing imaginable, God uses that to bring us to him, to reconcile us to himself, to reconcile himself to the world, to bring about forgiveness so that we can know God and be known by him, so that we can behold the very face of God, so that we can actually see his love and through his resurrection live in his life. This is what he has done for us. I'll close with this. Um, I heard a story about a Native American tribe that has this this rite of passage. I don't know what tribe it was. Um, but when the boy in the tribe would get to be about 12 or 13 years old, uh, they would take him out into the middle of the woods um, for a night alone. And so they would blindfold him, take him out so they didn't know where he was, spin him around so he was disoriented, take off his blindfold and sit him down in the woods where he'd have to spend the night. Um, and I mean... Imagine, I mean, this might not seem sound scary to some of y'all that like being in the woods, but uh, for those of you, those of us who do, do think this sounds scary, imagine being a kid. Imagine being 12 or 13 and being sat down in the woods, you don't know where you are, and then you're left. Um, all you're left with is you know, the sound of your own breath, 
your heart beating in your chest, um, whatever wild animals happen to walk by. You know, when it's pitch black, you really can't tell the difference between like a squirrel and a raccoon or a deer and a bear. I don't, this hasn't happened to me, but um, (laughs) you can imagine, right? 12-year-old boy sitting in the woods, pitch black, by himself for the night. And you have to tough it out for the night. Um, But then it's morning and the sun coming up. And as the sun rises and his eyes begin to adjust, he sees standing 10, 15 yards in front of him his father, who's been standing there all night with him. And then he looks beyond his father and he actually sees that the entire village, all the men in the village are armed and standing in a ring around him. And they've been there all night. And they do this to instill in that person, you are not alone. The tribe is with you, we are for you, and we've got you. And friends, God does this for us. Some of us are in really difficult things where we can't see, and life is scary, and life is hard. But God is with you, and he is for you, and he has proven this to you in Jesus, so you can trust him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, preserving for us the story of Abraham. And Lord, we thank you that in him we see ourselves and in his life we see you, that you are a God who is present with us even when we forget, that you're a God who protects us from those outside of us and from ourselves. And you're a God who provides for us, especially you do this in Christ. We pray that you'd help us, help us to believe this. Lord, for those of us who have really hard things, Lord, help us to trust you that you, um, you take the worst busted play, your son and his death, and you turn it for the greatest gain. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.